court. Magalhaes to Stokes, who's onside! Wagner! Here's Sims. It's a good serve, this from Southampton. They could finish the job here. It's Shane Long, and he has done it! Just a minute to play. First stoppage time. Here's Letizia! Hello and welcome. You have reached episode 111 of the Saints FC podcast. Uh, I'm John Bailey. I'm here with you once again. And opposite me on my laptop screen in faraway lands across the country are Mr. Tom Parker, of course. Tom, how are you? Been good, but frustrated, but we'll come to that. Yeah. And uh, Mr. Alex Stewart, who you may remember from, I don't know, like episode 97 or something, slightly happier times, I I feel. Um, Alex, uh, you may remember from our episode, it was episode 102, uh, but you may also recognise his voice from the marvellous TIFO videos and TIFO uh, podcasts. Alex, it's it's really good to have you back on the podcast and, uh, you know, shining light in probably what is going to be otherwise dismal week month season for saints fans so welcome back alex thanks very much for having me yeah thank you so so much for coming on i was sort of so flustered by our change in um audio recording software in the start i didn't even bother saying thank you for joining us so thank you for for joining us again alex alex if people like hearing your voice today and they want to hear more or understand more about you what what should they do where should they go they should, uh, I suppose the easiest way is to check out TIFO on Twitter. So that's um, TIFO football underscore. That's where we put out the videos, which I write some of, uh, and also where the TIFO football podcast lives, which you can also find on Spotify and all the usual uh, things. So yeah, that's uh, that's me. Okay, great. Um, so what have we got? Well, I was... A little bit ill with a cold for two weeks, so I haven't recorded an episode for three games now. Um, obviously, we've got one very, very important game to talk about, which is the FA Cup semi-final. Um, and Tom, I may get you to mention the games against Burnley and West Bromwich Albion, although probably the less said about West Brom game, the better. I'd never, I didn't actually see the Burnley game, so I might want a, a two-minute word from both of you, you chaps, on that because I missed that one. It probably sounds like the only decent thing that's happened for Saints. But I want to start with the FA Cup semi-final, if that's okay. Um, so obviously, you know, really big opportunity for Saints to make some history, the players to go down um, in history. We know this is a, a group of players that can beat any team that's put in front of them on their day. We've beaten the likes of Man City, Liverpool. Chelsea in Ralph's time Um, and we're up against Leicester a team who are doing well this season uh, who have thrashed us but we've beaten them since so I mean it was a pretty good opportunity and I think probably if we go back all the way to episode 102 and the way Saints were playing last time we spoke Alex things that back then if you said that Saints would be in an FA Cup semi-final against Leicester you'd be feeling pretty confident about it I think if if we go back to those sort of heady days yes I I think you would then I mean obviously expectations 
going into the tie itself were considerably more tempered um, by recent performances. And I suppose the weird thing is it's, it's hard to know exactly what has gone wrong beyond the absences, uh, beyond the fact that, that key players have been unavailable for key games. Obviously, Romeo's been out for, for a considerable, uh, considerable amount of time. Um, and it feels like... It feels like the team is not knitting together in quite the same way that it was. So, yes, I think I think back then in those heady days when we were you know, <laughs> we were top for a twenty four hour period and all the rest of it, we'd have been licking our lips at this prospect. But no, I I was expecting nothing nothing less than a defeat. If I'm honest, Tom, yeah, were your feelings the same? I disagree. So I I think you know, John, you mentioned we'll start the FA Cup final, but I sorry FA Cup semi final, but I don't think you can talk about the FA Cup semi-final without looking at the West Brom game because for me like my post my, I mean make no mistakes the West Brom game was the worst Southampton performance for years I, I think it was genuinely flummoxingly terrible probably up there with the Everton game after the post 9-0 now but what I felt afterwards when I thought about it I was like well Ralph's done a couple of things here he he doesn't have a, really, does it? He? he doesn't have a kind of alternative 11, you know, like generally outside of swapping Adams for maybe Redmond or maybe Walcott, the team kind of names itself. And those players know that no matter what they do, Danny's can not score for 15 games. He's going to start. Carl Walker is always going to be right back. You know, and I, I, I felt that Maybe the, the players were like, well, you know, we've got an FA Cup semi-final. This is a dead run we're against West Brom. There's nothing in this game. Let's not run ourselves into the ground and ping a hamstring or get sent off or do something stupid. And therefore, they'll go hell for leather against Leicester. And, you know, I couldn't have been further from them. I couldn't have been more wrong. Yeah, I mean... I- the, the the game against West Brom made me want to sort of weep in terms of just how bad it was. But it, you, you sort of had that, oh, well, there's the semi-final around the corner. But to, to be honest, like Alex, I just didn't really expect us to, to get anything from the game against Leicester. I was a little bit worried that, um, you know, if things went wrong quickly, we'd suddenly be staring down the barrel of a really awful humbling, um, you know, with a big score. So I was sort of pleased that we managed to keep things tight-ish. Um, but yeah, I, my expectations were pretty low as well. Which, should we just sort of like meander our way quickly through the the main you know, focal points of the match and then let's have a bit of a wider discussion at the end. Um, I think probably the first thing of note for Saints was Diallo getting an early yellow card. And we know that um, Saints deep-line midfielder getting an early yellow card doesn't normally work out particularly well for Saints because it, it means we have a little bit be- less bite in um in the tackles and um yeah I think Romeo is like certainly a different player when he has a yellow card than when he's not got a yellow card although he always manages to avoid turning it into a red that that was maybe the first thing that I thought maybe had an impact on the game what what, what did you guys think uh, yes I think that's absolutely right I mean Southampton rely on intensity and I think particularly when you're up against Leicester who uh, I know they didn't start Madison in this game but when they have that three of Madison, Tielemans and Ndidi I think that's in some ways one of the best balanced midfields in the Premier League so you need to have 
the ability to press hard, you need to be intense, you need to be right up against them and preventing them from, particularly from Tielemans, from playing those passes from deep. I have to say, I think Diallo was probably lucky that the challenge was as early as it was because there's certainly, I mean, we, we have a, a little TIFO WhatsApp group when we were all watching games together and, and there, were, there was certainly a consensus that had that been later on in the game, it, it could potentially have been a straight red Um I think it was pretty reckless, and and I can understand his enthusiasm. He's you know he's had a run of games, but this is arguably the the biggest picture that he's he's played for the side so far. Um, but I thought it was a bit silly, and and like you say, it did rob us of that ability to to be quite so uh, intensive in our pressing in, in the midfield, and that's exactly the area that you don't want to allow Leicester time on the ball and the ability to start to dictate the tempo, which is what they then did. Uh, I think that point about time on the ball is absolutely right. I think Diallo, you know, no doubt has the makings of a very good player, but he's not there yet. And I think not only did his early booking rule him out as, not rule him out, but counter his defensive abilities, but he lacks the kind of one-touch pass that Romeo and Ward-Prowse specialise in. You know, he does often take a couple of touches or likes to turn with the ball. And I think it means that the Saints aren't breaking forward as quickly um, and aren't getting well, ends involved. It's interesting. If you watch Diallo when he was at Brest, which I, I did a little bit on video um, before he joined us, he was used more as a press-resistant, ball-carrying midfielder. Like, not all of the time. You know, I'm not talking that, you know, he was some kind of Mr. Dembele character. But I think his game in France was uh, was certainly tempered to, to do that. And he he likes to take that additional touch to see if he can then burst forwards and carry the ball a little bit further. But I agree what that means is that you don't necessarily get... I think it's interesting. It actually probably affects us more in terms of um, the ability to recycle possession from a cul-de-sac. You know, I, I'm not so worried about... The, the ability to transition forward. But one of the things that Romeo does really well is judge situations when Southampton are heading into an area where they're not going to progress the ball that well and quickly returning it to the centre-backs or to the full-backs. And I think Diallo is more forward-thinking and, and, and is more interested in seeking to progress the ball, which sometimes means that we end up losing it in a position where we can ill afford to because uh, it, there's the opportunity for the opposition to then transition quickly. Yeah, it's it's, it's sort of a, a weird one because I, I don't think um, necessary when Romeo sort of went out on uh, injured for a long while that I would have thought it would have actually impacted our attacking play quite so much, but it is, um, it, it does, you know, for those reasons that you've said, has has made a difference really. I just didn't think sort of Diallo um, Romeo would would be sort of an important attacking cog, and and it sort of turns out that way in his absence that you can see that that's happened. And actually, when Diallo first sort of broke in on the scene, it, it was sort of that ball carrying ability that, as you described, the press resistant ball carrying ability that he did quite well in his first few games, which I think certainly took me by surprise that he was able to do that um, so young and, you know, so inexperienced in the Premier League. Um, in, in the first half as well, there, we had a few chances for Leicester. Um, ben Reckon Forster did quite well in um, 
blocking out a, a, a Leicester chance. Um, Vardy had quite a good chance bearing down on, over on Forster, but um, sort of sliced it wide. And then I thought the best opportunity for Saints was um, Danny Ings had the ball approaching the edge of the area, and it looked like he might take quite an early shot, um, which would have been from some distance, but certainly not something that he's uh, not done without success before. But he sort of tried to carry it on a bit, played for the foul, I think, hoping to get James Ward-Prowse free kick and didn't get it. His, his sort of dive wasn't quite good enough. Um, that sort of frustrates me a little bit because I think if we think back to early Saints this season and, and Danny Ings um, on form, I think he would have hit that and mm-hmm. certainly tested the keeper. And it it sort of pointed to a whole overall sort of quite cautious approach to the game, I thought. I think that's that's one of the two reasons that we um that we were so significantly overperforming expected goals in the first half of the season or first third of the season or um partly because James Wilkes' ability from direct free kicks and also to create headed opportunities for players means that and I think we talked about this on the last pod, it, it creates opportunities of a significantly lower XG, but because it's a de- deliberate game plan, it was kind of sustainable. But the other way that we would do that is the dangling snapshot, you know, that, that ability that he has to hit a quick shot from a slightly unexpected location. I mean, I've not gone back and checked the video, but I suspect if you looked at Ings's goals, at least half of them would pass at least one defender on the way um, and and I can certainly remember several instances where he's hit it through really two or three defenders, and that's because he shoots when when defenders aren't expecting it. They want or that they're, they're assuming he's going to take another touch, um, and it felt like a kind of a regression to the ings of maybe a season or two before, where there was less of that instinctive. I'm just going to go for it now because it's the right moment, or maybe a greater degree of caution. I'm not entirely sure, but, but you're right. I think it's, um, it's something where if that, if that opportunity had happened at the beginning of the season, he would have shot much, much sooner. Um, not that that necessarily yields a goal, but I think there's been a change in the style for some reason there. Yeah. And, and just generally, I think Saints are sort of taking less risks and being less opportunistic as well. So if we then move on to the second half, I, I suppose at halftime, I was probably quite pleased to be nil-nil because we hadn't really had an awful lot um, and Leicester hadn't had an awful lot for us to be hugely worried about. And I thought at the start of the second half, we looked a little bit more lively, uh, perhaps for the first like five, six minutes. Um, but then we have the situation of Bednarek, uh, who had been tested a few times by Vardy already uh, on, on the left wing. Um, Vardy gets... gets um, past Bednarek and puts across him, which leads to a, a dreadful shot from Ian Ache, which is going so far wide it hits Vestergaard, who's sort of, you know, not really in a great position to try and stop Ian Ache, and then bounces back to him and he puts his second shot in. Um, it was a dreadful goal to concede. It was horrible. Yeah, we, I think Saints need to have a talk about Bednarek. And the loyalty shown to Bednarek is admirable, but he does. People have worked him out, haven't they? Which is, you drag him high up the pitch, and you try and turn him, and he's not. He's not fast enough to make up the ground. And 
Vardy did it. They did it to him a couple of times, and it was just an awful goal to concede. It was like a horribly calamitous, stupid goal. Um, which no, you know, I just I think I don't understand. We bought Salisu because he reads the game really well and he's fast. And in and in you know we've got kind of instead we're playing two very ponderous centre backs who have their own strength, but you know Vestergaard is is like an oil tanker. And I, I just, it was a very, you could just see that it obviously worked out. You're going to play off Bednarek and they got it right and they scored a goal. It's also, I mean, I, I completely agree. And I'm, I'm persistently baffled with the lack of opportunity that Salasu's had. Um, but also this is something that if you play against Leicester, you know will happen. I mean, the number of times we, we did a TIFO video on uh when Jamie Vardy scored his 100th Premier League goal. Was it 100 or 100th top senior goal or whatever it was? I can't remember. And I watched all of them. And the number of times that he peels off onto that left-hand side, takes the ball, and then runs on an angled run in towards goal, attacking the space in between the fullback, who's usually too high, and the centre-back, who's usually been dragged up a little bit. Um, you know, it's like Vardy 101 that opportunity um, and often he actually shoots himself and, and, and does well but here I mean Ian has been a threat all season too so um, I don't think it was a, a huge surprise that those two combined but like Tom says you know not only have Leicester recognised a weakness of Southampton's that they can exploit but I think Southampton failed to, to counteract what is obviously a Leicester strength with those those typical Vardy runs it's quite disappointing yeah, and I, I suppose at this point, um, this is where you now expect Saints to sort of try and go for some sort of blood and guts. Yeah, you're in the semi-final. There's there's nothing to lose, really, is there? You've you've got to go for it. Um, we see Adams coming on uh, for Redmond. Uh, I'll I'll bring all of the subs in at, at this point, actually, and then we'll talk about sort of perhaps the opportunities for Saints. But we have Adams on for Redmond in, in the 58th minute, uh, Walcott on for Gineppe in the 73rd minute, and then Salisu and Teller on um, in the 85th minute. We didn't really get any blood and guts, I don't think. Uh, the probably two... Um, we had two shots from Diale. The first one just after Adams came on, which was sort of quite a long-range speculative shot. The second one was sort of that achingly close volley. And um, what a goal that could have been. And um, that's, you know, maybe we can talk about it for a moment because that was literally all we had. And then, you know, I suppose James Madison had had a shot in acres of space, but really there was there was nothing, nothing more of note for Saints just nothing. And I think that's probably the thing which I'm most upset about is just how little um, we threw into this this game in terms of that sort of level of effort. And, you know, it, it sort of didn't seem to occur to the players how important this game might be, or, or certainly or to Ralph, I don't know. I mean, it, I just feel a bit of uh, at a loss. I'm just really sad about it. I, I'm always... I'm always inclined to be, I think, more generous to players in terms of, of how they view games. I, I like. I don't think there would be any there would be any Southampton players who weren't conscious of the importance of it. I, I just feel like 
with the season having gone the way it has with, you know, such a bright positive start, falling away again, very poor results. Let's not go into the specifics. Um, coming off the back of that West Brom defeat and, and also just being really threadbare. Like I, I never felt there was going to be another gear that Southampton could go into. I think even if they desperately, desperately wanted to throw everything at Leicester. And, and let's also bear in mind that Leicester had their first choice defensive three for the first time in ages. You know, Fafana is an exceptional player. Johnny Evans is hugely experienced. Soyuncu is athletic and, and poses a threat carrying the ball forwards as well. So, you know, they're playing against a really good defence who, who are finally back together again. But I just felt like Southampton looked weary. I mean, really, really weary. And I, I, I would never wish to say that the, it's because the players don't care. I mean, I think, I think this season has been so odd and so busy and has so many external stresses on it. And when you add in the psychological impact of how topsy-turvy it's been for Southampton this season, I just think you're looking at a squad that's completely spent. Yeah, I think mentally as well, they look broken, don't they? They look... I think I mean more mental than physical, if anything, actually. Yeah. yeah. They look completely devoid of joy, I think. I mean, if we look at the results really since the Liverpool game in the league, once it two wins, Sheffield United, the worst, you know, one of the worst teams ever played in the Premier League and admittedly a very good comeback against Burnley. But in those times, there's been very little joy. You know, Danny Ings' goal against Burnley was probably, you'd say, is about it um, and they just look demotivated I think as well the club you know when the post-mortem of this season is and hopefully I think we'll still be in the Premier League I, you know if we do get relegated then we truly are we've really um, you know that's the story for the ages but I think the club has got some really tough decisions to make I think yeah do we if you start to look at the players that played on Saturday I mean Bertrand for me, it's one of the fascinating things of this season. Bertrand looks still fit as a butcher's dog, but those sort of lung-busting runs that we, you know, that was such an important outlet for us with an, you know, Nathan Redmond ball down the channel. Which is just when was the last time you really saw one? And I think kind of the Roman Bertrand thing is a, it's almost like a microcosm of Saints' season, which is like there's someone there that did something that was so important, and it's just not happening. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't, it's just not happening for any of them, really. Stuart Armstrong is probably about the only one you could say at the moment is actually playing well. Even Carl Walker-Peters looks like people have got his number. Um, they just looked so fatigued. But also, they just, also, you just felt they just wanted that final whistle. Yeah, they, 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 I mean... That's just a, a crazy idea, though, isn't it? That they sort of want want to be off. I mean, I totally agree with both of you that they look mentally and mentally broken. I think they look devoid of ideas, and, and you know that that whole idea of about it being joyless as well is is quite an interesting one because I think when you are feeling confident and you know sparking bright or whatever that that is when you take chances and then some of those chances come off and, and you win games. And we're, we're not seeing that. And then the other thing as well, which I've noticed probably since that Liverpool win and as we've sort of dipped down the table and our form and performances have dipped as well, is 
Ralph on the touchline seems to be a slightly different demeanour as well. I think probably in the first half of the season, you really, he sort of seemed like quite a big presence, very vocal presence on the touchline. And almost like he was playing every ball, every header, every pass, you know, commanding his players at every single moment. And when things start to go wrong, you almost start to see him shrink a little bit at the side of the pitch, which just doesn't really seem to suit Ralph at all. Um, and I think, you know, some of our listeners have noted this as well. So I've had quite a few people um, message me on Twitter and a couple of emails as well. And some of our fans are really starting to question whether Ralph is still the right man for the job, which, again, back in those heady days, when you were first on the podcast, Alex, we wouldn't have, you know, we just thought how lucky we are to have Ralph. And in such a short period of time for so many fans, and I don't know whether this is a vocal minority or if there's a sort of wider feeling about it, but it certainly feels like it's a growing number. But there are there are fans that are questioning whether Ralph is still the right man for the job. And I wonder, you know, what's what's the answer? I, the answer is that the, the squad needs to be bigger and stronger. Um, I mean, if if you if you hire a manager like Hasenhutl, who's come through the Red Bull system, who plays a, a high pressing, pretty vertical brand of football, then you know that the squad is going to get worn out um, and. If you look at the substitutes, effectively you've got a reserve striker in in a well, I mean, on this in this instance in Adams, uh, you've got Walcott, who I agree has has brought some leadership and some experience, but is thirty one and is on loan. You've then got two centre backs, um, uh, Salas, who I really like, um, Stevens, I think has his place in the squad, but. After that, you, you're basically looking at youth players again. The whole of the rest of it is pretty much youth players. There's no, unless you want to swap out a left winger or a striker, there isn't any scope to play with this team. There isn't any opportunity to mix things up tactically, to inject something different in the course of a game. These players all do roughly similar things, even the attacking players. And so I think the, the combination of some of these results, the fragility within the squad, the lack of leadership, the lack of experience uh, among a lot of the players. Um, I think, well, I suppose, what I mean is that Ralph Hasenhutl is a really good coach. He is trying perhaps to do things with the squad that they are currently not capable of sustaining across the course of a whole league season. That is not uncommon for coaches to play football the way that he does. And ordinarily, the teams that succeed with that are ones that have a stronger, deeper squad. So either you get in a more conservative manager uh, who plays a more pedestrian style of football, in which case I think you lose out on the opportunity of having a genuinely great coach, or you actually back him and get... And I'm not saying... I'm not being one of those fans who's like, oh, the board needs to spend money because that's, you know, it, you have to spend money the right way. Spending money for its own sake is, is not a good idea. But you can't rationally expect to play the way that Ralph wants the team to play through a whole season with a squad that is this thin. It just doesn't work. 
So I'm not saying that, you know, you go out and sign the five best players in the world. We have to be realistic about what Southampton's financial clout is, uh, its ability to sell itself as a football club as well, the emphasis on bringing younger players through. And there are some good young players in there, people like Smallbone, Yankovic's. Um, but you also need to be sensible about what you're asking your players to be able to do and what you're asking your coach to get those players to do. And there is an irreconcilable imbalance at the moment between that and how the squad is created. And I think you're absolutely right. I mean, even you, you start to look at some of the decisions made this year and what's happened this season in terms of everyone knew you know, this was a compressed season with little pre-season, same number of games. Uh, everyone knew this. And Saints have made some baffling decisions to weaken their squad. And I know that he's not the future of the football club, but look at someone like Shane Long. You know, like he, I'd argue, you know, in a season like this, was getting rid of Shane Long the right answer? Probably not. Was you know for a team whose fullbacks are so important, was letting the two reserve fullbacks go out on loan, leaving them with zero cover. That was it was absolute idiocy to do that. I mean, irresponsible to do that. But it, but, what, but this is the thing, and it's you know I, I think the Shane Long point. I know that he's not you know he's never going to win us the Premier League, but we need you know we need to he what he does do is he's a pain in the ass and he stretches games and he makes life difficult and he's experienced he's a leader and i think we're saints i think there's another point about wall prowse and he's a brilliant professional he's clearly inspirational and fantastic but is he the captain that this team needs you know is he going to is he going to drag those players up and i think there's too many for me players who almost wear their heart on their sleeves. And, you know, whenever you go and watch Saints in the flesh, you watch Nathan Redmond. And that's the great thing about watching football in the flesh and not on camera, you watch players, what they do. And Nathan Redmond, if it's not going for him, will throw his hands in the air and he'll ball and he'll scream at people. Bertrand, terrible body language. Bednarek, I think, has, you know, has the look of a defeated man. And I just don't think, maybe it's a Romeo thing without Romeo, but they just don't seem to be... We're able to, once a decision has gone against them or once the, the gods have conspired against them, they don't seem to be able to pick themselves back up. I wonder too whether whether Wood Prowse has a bit too much responsibility at the moment. I mean, you know, Captain, there's a lot made of the set-piece delivery stuff being potentially... Southampton's major option, which is never a situation you want to be in unless you're FC Michelin. Um, he also has to do with the absence of, you know, a, a very solid and vastly experienced colleague in central midfield. And I agree with, you know, Diallo. I think Diallo was a, a shrewd acquisition, but he was an acquisition to develop over a season not to throw into first-team action towards the tail end with the expectation that he would start a run of games. I don't think anybody would have bought him for, for that um, intention. So I think Ward Prowse probably, he's probably reached that stage where he feels like in a team that is lacking leadership, he's he's just got too much on his plate. He can't do everything in central midfield. 
and be the major goal threat and be the captain and try and carry a group of players who are exhausted and probably quite miserable in some instances or inexperienced and worried about their future and, and all of this kind of stuff. It's it's a is not and I say this with no disrespect, but he doesn't seem like a big character. He's not one of those captains who seems extremely vocal and shouty. He leads by example. But I think uh, I think Southampton need more of that. Uh, I mean, Brian Bertrand is he's a very cerebral character. He thinks a lot about football. He understands the tactical side of the game very, very well. Um, but again, he's not. He's a lead example kind of player, and and I think he's in a tricky position from a tactical perspective. His his runs, I don't think he's making them because because he's being he's having to be much more cautious now. I think that's part of the problem that without that cover uh, ahead and insight of him, he he can't go on these lung bursting runs quite so often because Southampton could be picked apart in transition if he gets too too high up the field. So he's naturally being pushing himself forwards in quite the same way. And it has this kind of knock on effect. It's, it's all these tiny intangibles that, that make it very hard to, to say, well, there's a clear and obvious solution and the clear and obvious solution is to do X because I don't think there is one. I think you can see a variety of ways that things can improve, but I think more than anything, I think we're safe. You know, we're, um, that the, there's there's a sufficient gap between us and, and the relegation zone um, for that not to be a massive issue. But I think the end of the season needs to come, and I I hope that Southampton have planned and thought very very hard about the acquisitions they're going to make during the summer because they'll be absolutely crucial. I think, sorry, John, just one more thing on that point about strange decisions. One of the strangest things for me over the last six weeks or so has been the decision to sideline Shay Adams about the last month or so. We've got in, you know, if you look at our forward line, uh, you know, if, if you look at Redmond, Walcott and Moose Jeffo are three of the kind of most mercurial is a nice way to put it, but wildly inconsistent is, is probably the more realistic footballers, you know, you'll ever see. All of them capable of brilliance, but none of them have ever been able to, you know, and Moose is very young, admittedly. Redmond still got a lot of game time. Walcott's had a fantastic career, but none of them are consistent and none of them seem like the the right answer to the question. And I, I just don't understand why. If you look at the way we played against Leicester, where we ended up just pumping the ball up long and the Leicester, Leicester centre-backs all day, you know, Danny Ings is not great in the air uh we're all day just gobbling that ball up and, and recycling it to the very talented Leicester midfield who outnumbered ours and you know what's what's Adams done wrong to not yeah Adams was playing really well he was the only one who was scoring any goals and now he's a substitute when you've got Walcott who scored two all season Redmond has scored two in the league all season Moose won one in the legal season. Yeah, I wonder whether it's to do with protecting midfield, though. If you have two out-and-out strikers who are going to press as high as Ings and Adams were pressing at the start of the season, that that does leave quite a gap to... I mean, I know Ings could, 
drop off and press from behind as well, which I feel like maybe it's a slightly conciliatory uh, thing done in order to protect that central midfield a little bit more, try and have a little bit more pace, but also a, a player who is slightly more inclined to play a little bit deeper uh, and just try to give the midfield slightly more cover. I mean, I agree, it's it's a conservative move and against Leicester, your best opportunity is to press them high um, and, and to try and disrupt their ability to build out from the back, but I, I'm guessing that's the rationale. I don't know, though. Yeah, it's, it's some very strange uh, decisions this season. I, I think um, the loaning out... Um, the right back and left back backup options was just crazy, suicidal in, in some ways, um, especially when Carl Walker Peters got injured um, so soon after that happened. Um, so, I mean, I, I think in response to the original question, is Ralph still the right man for the job? Alex, am I right in sort of reading between the lines and you think Ralph is a football manager that you sort of, or a football coach that you greatly admire and his way of playing football does work but you must provide the correct tools for it to happen am i is that right completely there there is there is no coincidence that the red bull infrastructure is created to provide not only a coaching pipeline but a player pipeline of, of players that are schooled in this system in the kind of of pressing rapid transitions, verticality, you get it whether you're playing at FC Liefering or whether you're at Salzburg or you're at Leipzig um, and New York as well, obviously, and <laughs> myriad other clubs, no doubt. Um, and that is a way of ensuring not just that uh, there's a, a, a deep enough squad to be able to play that style of football, but also that the players that are coming into the team are capable of doing it and, and have it almost as a second nature by and large. Uh, we have seen these kind of coaches struggle in first, second season in the Premier League. Klopp had the same issues at Liverpool when he was trying to get that style of pressing in. Admittedly, it was, it was a slightly different form of pressing, but you know, it, it takes time for these methods to work. It also takes a greater degree of physical and mental resilience than but I but no I, I don't fault the manager I absolutely would keep him 100% uh, and I also don't really blame the players for it Tom is that your opinion as well or are you starting to doubt um, Ralph my, my concern with Ralph no, Ralph is a, is a great manager and I, I, I agree I think you know I think the point is correct, which is, you know, he's a, he's a technician, isn't he? And, you know, if you take a, the, but he's a specialist technician, he needs a certain set of tools and, you know, saints haven't given him beyond what he needs immediately. They've not given him more. Uh, and in a season like this, you need more. Um, my concern with it is, is like whether he seems to have the passion for it. You know, he seems to. He talked, you know, a couple of weeks ago about staying at Saints for another three years, and that's great. But I, th I think, you know, we talked about everything from the team, you know, the club, the bottom up. The under twenty threes have lost seven one to Leicester tonight. You know, like my my concern is 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 it working? You know, don't doubt he's great, but is it working? And 
I think one of the things, and I think this is, you know, this will be down to a lack of squad, but we have no plan B. Nothing. And I and so many times this season, and I we, you know, I've said this before, and it's not, you know, it's not a particularly original thought from me. Other people have said it, but part of the problem is Saints lose a lot of games from winning positions. They lose a lot of games from winning positions because other managers see what's going wrong and they change it to counteract what Saints are doing. Saints then lose games. We go behind. We just play the same game. It doesn't matter who we're playing, what the score is, how far we're into the game. We generally just play exactly the same game with exactly the same set of players. And and I just I wonder if there's a tactical inflexibility there, but also the fact that he has no real, as I understand it, no real number two at the club. And is there is there anyone there to to speak truth to power and to sort of you know. 60 minutes into a game. So you've got to make these subs now. You know, that was one of the only positive things we saw in the FA Cup semi-final was we made a sub quickly after going behind. But I don't know. I, I, my worry is, is does, a, does Ralph leaving look like, and if he goes to the right club, does it look like no one loses face? Well, there's a big old reshuffle happening in Germany, isn't there? Um, mm. And um, obviously with with the European Super League occurring, German clubs have, have said they're not going into it. Um, it does potentially make Jurgen Klopp's position at Liverpool interesting, um, given his outstated opposition to the ESL. Um, but Hansi Flick is leaving Bayern. Nagelsmann, therefore, is available for a price, but probably would move to Bayern. That would leave a vacancy at Leipzig. Would Jesse Marsh move to Leipzig? Or is he a sufficiently attractive proposition potentially for a Premier League side? If the Leipzig vacancy is open, then it would be quite in their character to potentially bring Hasenhutl back. Um, so, I, you know, there's, the, it, the Bundesliga likes coaches that have Bundesliga experience. Yeah. Um, and, and there is potentially, you know... It, it's a very attractive proposition. It's a more attractive proposition than Southampton, let's be honest. So I don't know. It could be one of those. It could be uh, like when Mourinho left um, uh, Real Madrid for, for Chelsea the second time around. Basically, everybody wanted the move to happen. So <laughs> they they cancelled any kind of fee for it because it just suited all of the parties to get that move done. Um, possibly you could see a similar sort of situation happening. I think it would be a real shame um, because I also then, you know, I, uh, the thing I worry more about, yes, obviously I would worry about losing a coach of Hassan Hootl's calibre, but I think Southampton have been really quite hit and miss in terms of managerial appointments. If you look at, you know, sort of the post-Atkins era, there have, been, there have been a couple of successes and there have been a couple of, abject failures and there have been a couple in between um and i don't have a huge amount of confidence in the board to necessarily appoint a good sort of semi-continuity manager somebody who can embrace the aspects of of the hassan hutl regime that worked well um maybe temper some of the ones that didn't work so well um and, and i do i take on point about the fact that you know this this idea of rolling up the blueprint across the whole club, I think that's still very much a work in progress. And 
it's impossible to judge it as a success at this point in time. So yeah, there probably is work that could be done to improve that sort of thing. But um, yeah, you look at the board and think, are they going to pick the right guy for the job, particularly given other of the trans uh, well, other of the decisions around transfers and loan signings and so on that have been so badly balled up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I sort of feel like we're in a little bit of a catch twenty two situation here. Whereas, yeah, we we've got Ralph Hasenhutl, who is a specific manager for a sort of specific squad size and type. And, you know, yes, he's a good manager. Yes, it, you know, I mean, we can see how well it works. The The way we were playing at the start of the season, the way that we played um, during Project Restart last season, we, we can, we've got a glimmer, a, a good idea of what a successful or a functioning Ralph Hasenhuttle, um side looks like. And it's it's a wonderful, beautiful thing to behold. Um, yeah, and I'd, I'd take that any day of the week. But... Is Southampton ever going to give Ralph the correct tools for him to be able to do that job consistently? I don't know. I think that's a question that the, probably the, the board needs to answer. Um, and then if we're not going to do that, then do we need to go back to having a slightly more pragmatic approach, at least perhaps to the first team? Yeah, If he is here for the long term and he is going to build the youth teams around his style of play and then that's going to generate the young players to bring in and it will work that's all going to take an awful lot of time does he therefore need to be a little bit more pragmatic perhaps with the first team and you know make sure that we do have a plan b or some you know slightly different variations i mean i think probably the closest we've got to a plan b is when he went for the um sort of the three four three right at the end in the 85th minute with those uh, subs of Salisa and Teller coming on. Um, I mean, it didn't really make a noticeable difference, I don't think, in terms of us creating any more particularly good chances. But, um, yeah, so I think there's there's probably more questions than answers, I, I think, to this this whole area and topic, and I almost feel like it's something that we could go on and on about. So, Tom and Alex, do you want to have your last, last words on this, and then we'll move on to the joy that is the European Super League? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I guess my my last word will be that I think I think the summer is going to be crucial. I think you're absolutely right that when when a Ralph team is playing well and playing properly and adhering to his principles, it's fantastic. It's not currently sustainable. It could be made sustainable if the right player acquisitions are made over the summer, but I have limited confidence in that happening. So we shall see. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the club are, uh, are managing expectation, aren't they, with the signings? They're talking about no more than £10 million. I, I, uh, one of the was one of the things that was being rumoured. And you know, that puts us in a kind of a bracket of we have to unearth brilliant players that no one else has thought of signing in the world, which I feel far between. I mean, I'm I'm happy to step up and do it if anyone's seen our sensible transfer series. I'll do it for ten percent cut of any transfer fee. But I think I would do it for the love of the game. <laughs> but it's it's you know if you look at like our recruitment is bad and, and it's a really good point. We we've not often got it right in recent seasons, and and we're still paying for that. Yeah, you know, the lack of squad this year is not due to Ralph. It's due to the decisions of the Wesley Hoyts, the Aldi Um 
the Carrillos. That's yeah, we are still paying the bills. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, to some extent, the Bufals. You know, we weren't big. We signed terrible players. We we wasted the Van Dyke money to a pound, and that now is it, it seems mad to think about it. But there, you know, that is our that is our chaos theory, isn't it? That is the butterfly flap, flaps its wings and there's a hurricane somewhere in the world. Is is that we signed really bad players at really inflated wages that no one else wants, and you know we've seen. Lazio saying they're not going to take up Hoyt. Fulham are, you know, probably going to get relegated. So we'll see the lovely smirking Mario Lamina back at St Mary's. And these are players that, at their wages, no one wants. Yeah, with a budget, yeah. Barcelona. Yeah, it's, the, yeah. it's when they blew yeah. the Neymar money. It's the same thing. You know, we, we're going to have. Yeah, you know, what's that? Hoyt and Lamina. Now I don't know what players are on, but I bet that's 120 grand a week. Now coming back to Saints, six million pounds a calendar year on those two players, and we can't ship them out. And um, yeah, I think this summer is really important. But my concern is if we don't, the yeah, other teams are strengthening and other teams are recruiting really well. Just look at Leicester and the players they've signed, like Fofana. These players are brilliant, and we're not. And I think the problem is, is we're not standing still. But we're walking, and and a lot of other teams are running, and we're going to struggle. I think Leicester's a fantastic analogue there because, granted, Leicester obviously won the Premier League, but the what catapulted them to that was unearthing a couple of players in Ligue 2, uh, in Moraes and Kante, also obviously Vardy from non-league. You know, really shrewd acquisitions that were made with limited outlay. And what they've done is they've scaled that up but continued to be sensible. You know, Castanier from Atalanta, fantastic signing. Fafana from Saint-Étienne, fantastic signing. Like, the amount of money they're able to spend is a little bit more than it was, but they've not gone wild on anybody. They've not massively overspent on anybody. They took a punt on Ian Echo as a cast-off from Man City, and he's now scored, I don't know, 10 in 7, something like that. Yeah, 15 um, season for Ineacho. Right, so I'd like to say that I did at the beginning of the season, call him as a player to watch on the TIFO podcast. Um, I think the the idea of, with, with, with the tools that are available these days in terms of video scouting, in terms of data, in terms of the breadth of availability of league information, yes, it's still difficult to find amazing players, but you only need to find two or three, three or four who are undervalued, who the market hasn't noticed, uh, to be able to make relatively good, astute, potentially transformational signings. I think Diallo is in that model, mm-hmm. um, but you're absolutely right. You know, the, the list of players that we've got very badly wrong is is much, much, much bigger than the list of players we've got right. And uh, and the, the, the club really needs to look at its recruitment process um, because it has not been good. And also just on that Leicester point, credit to them because when they've had to sell, which they did for Maguire, they sold big and they reinvested that money in better, you know, arguably, I mean, very strong feelings about Harry Maguire as how good he is, but they've invested across the team, made the entire team better. And that is something Saints just seem chronically incapable of doing over the last few years. So, um, Alex, I think we've got you on record here saying that you're just going to do it for the love of the game, but you're going to 
pull together a sensible transfers for Southampton and send that to the club's hierarchy and obviously give the Saints FC podcast an exclusive look at that as well. Is is that what I heard? Uh, absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I just, I, I, to be honest, it's the, it's the kind of thing I'd, I would love to do almost as a purely intellectual exercise. Um, but yeah, there, there are clearly, there are clearly things that, um, that need to be done in terms of the process and also in terms of the end result. Um, because players like Ido Carrillo sh- should not be getting through the filter. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's just, it's a shame when you see other clubs, um, like Tom said, other clubs making strides in this department, uh, and, and Southampton very much standing still. Mm. Um, so let's, let's move on to, uh, the European Super League, which I think, interestingly, from the whole transfer point of view, is there might be a lot of caution, I think, in, in their sort of transfer policy of clubs like Southampton because, well, A, COVID and all the lost revenue, but um, B, European Super League and the big six clubs potentially leaving the Premier League, which may, and I know that's not the current proposal, but it may end up happening, but they're, they're certainly looking to suck more of the television subscription money away from the other 14 clubs in the Premier League and, and, and all the other clubs in the football pyramid and have more of it for themselves. Um, Say, so, I mean, who wants to give us... Do, everyone's aware of what the European Super League is, right? So the big six clubs, they want to go and form a special league... Um, play midweek I think they they are not 100% on all the details but presumably this will be to the detriment of some of the domestic midweek competitions certainly the Champions League and Europa League I think would have to make way for this Um, and what are we left with I mean Tom Alex do you have particularly strong feelings about this proposal yeah, it's disgusting naked capitalism and the people involved should be booted out of football forever I like that. That's you know. Say what you think, Alex. Say, say what you think. Don't, <laughs> yeah, don't sit on the fence. Come I, on. I, I don't. I mean, okay. Let's be honest. Football has been moving in this direction for a long, long time, and and this is this is the opportunity to choose between one set of really bad guys and another set of really bad guys, right? So it's not like these clubs are somehow juxtaposed against the forces of righteousness. Insofar as there are forces of righteousness in football, it's fan groups uh, and and the occasional, you know, uh, fan-owned club. But it's this is the greater of two evils. Um, by creating a financial hegemony within that group of clubs. Um, the amounts of money being discussed are eye-watering in the billions. Uh, JP Morgan uh, have agreed to finance it, according to Reuters. Uh, it would create a tier of clubs that were basically ungovernable, effectively, by the uh, by UEFA or by FIFA because they would have too much money. Um, they would have too much legal clout. They could basically act with impunity and do what they liked as they are doing, um, and and it remains to be seen whether there'll be a sufficient appetite or capability for a legal challenge from UEFA. I mean, Seferin is lobbying very hard for this, um, but who knows whether it will happen. 
FIFA will cave on the World Cup because I think that you know the, the likelihood of, of FIFA actually not admitting players from European Super League clubs to, to play in the World Cup is ludicrous. That you know FIFA would not devalue their prime commodity by such an extent that you know you'd get rid of France, you'd get rid of uh, England, Italy. You'd you'd have quite a few of the German national team, but still not all of them. You know, it's like it, that's not going to happen. Um, so it, it's yeah, it's it's greed. It's it's just. I mean, <laughs> when it came out yesterday, there was again in our little Tifo WhatsApp group, um, there were kind of rumours of of this thing, and and then it wasn't really until the clubs, the English clubs started tweeting that it was the case. And, you know, I think Arsenal were probably the first one to say we are a founder member of the new European Super League. And uh, and there was just, like, disbelief, you know. It's how can How can a club so nakedly trample on the concern and the interests of their own fans? How can they put so much more interest and stock in the potential for broadcasting revenue than what the fans of their own club want. Um, Potentially jeopardise their place in the domestic game, potentially jeopardise their players' opportunity to play in the Euros, potentially jeopardise their ability to win anything other than this new competition, which... It, you know, has no history, has no standing, is of limited interest to 99% of football fans. I just, that's probably not very coherent, but I'm quite angry about it. Um, I'm going to play a little bit of devil's advocate here and um, suggest that sort of, weren't, weren't Southampton sort of complicit in the start of all of this happening anyway? I mean, the, if you look at clubs further down the footballing pyramid in England, they suffered this exact same thing, you know, what, 27-ish years ago, I guess nearly 30 years ago now, with the formation of the Premier League. Um, And that funneling of money away from, you know, the 92 to a a much smaller group. That's that's why I said that this is not, this is not a set of bad guys no. and a set of good guys. Everybody is complicit. If but you think- have if you have a Sky Sports subscription, you are complicit. If you have a BT Sports subscription, you are relatively complicit. Like it's this is this is the way football has been going mm. for decades, and it has now reached. I mean, I suppose it's great that people are now angry about it. And this is ultimately a kind of disaster capitalism, isn't it? That that these clubs have moved at the point that they have to because everybody else is weakened and they are also weakened because of the pandemic. So they have the financial reality of needing this additional money and other people aren't really in a position to fight them as hard as they would have been pre-COVID. But I think... I think the hand wringing from the football infrastructure, whether it's UEFA or FIFA or the other 14 clubs in the Premier League or whatever, is effectively pretty hypocritical. I mean, what do we have? If we don't have the European Super League, we have 
the Swiss model for the Champions League, which has an expanded format, has this weird league structure, and is just another way of seeking to funnel more money to a certain number of teams. You'll always get the same platitudes that it's going to create greater trickle-down wealth and it's going to benefit everybody. And it's bollocks. It's not going to happen. The only saving grace here is that there are enough fans. This is such a momentous hiatus. And I don't I don't remember 92 particularly well, so it probably felt as big. But there's something about this one. Maybe it's because we are also more clued up to the evils of this kind of neoliberal mm. globalization that we've been going through, that people are more upset and angry and on edge about things that undermine community because that's one of the few good things that's come out of the pandemic is is the role of community and in some instances absolutely kudos to individual football clubs including liverpool and manchester united for the the way that they helped during the pandemic it would be stupid to, to deny that as well but i think people are feeling particularly sore about certain things at the moment particularly angry about certain things and this has come at the moment of 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 political awareness of anger of of all sorts of other things that just makes this one feel like the one that will either change a lot of stuff or will effectively i guess destroy football as we know it okay so, so here's here's another question all right um and I, I think it's going to be quite interesting as well to hear our listeners' thoughts on this because we have a lot of listeners who are not based in Southampton, not you know geographically linked to Southampton Football Club and tune in from all, all parts of the world. And I wonder if perhaps those who are you know, geographically dislocated from the clubs that they support as fans are maybe going to feel a little bit more positive about this because you know what difference does it make to your average... Um, I don't know, American football fan of Manchester United or Chinese fan of Liverpool about whether they're playing in a European Super League or, or a Premier League. And I wonder what the sort of American and Chinese and Australian Saints fans think about, about the European Super League and and whether that, you know, whether that's going to differ from those who are linked to the city. Because it, what I think is quite interesting is when you have a football club which has sort of grown up around a community, it's like a... It's, it's a geographical thing. It's very much tied to the area. And then it becomes sold to a Russian oligarch or an American businessman or a Saudi prince or whatever. And then that club is owned. You know, should football clubs be able to be owned by any individual or, or private business? You know, that's maybe a, a broader question. But it's there's been a whole level going away from football clubs being community things that are located within a city and part of that city and i think mk dons is a perfect example of yeah. that on a sort of lower scale but football's been going in this sort of direction and and i think it asks a lot of deeper philosophical questions one of which is does the match going fan mean anything to a football club maybe in southampton it does because there's still a significant amount of the income but to a club like manchester united or liverpool i don't know they probably no. have platitudes towards their fans at Sharp, Old Trafford or Anfield, but the reality is is they'd much rather serve the tens of millions of fans elsewhere who've got more money and more collective buying power. I, I, sorry, just very quick on that. You have to look at the timing of the announcement. Right? The timing of the announcement tells you everything about who it's targeted at. And it was, I think, 
it was targeted for the eastern seaboard of the US, which tells you this is not about Europe. You know, it's about the it's about the US. And you know, on that point about community, the weirdest thing to me is this has taken so long. You know, I don't know what Stegman said. I think there's there's three points. I just yeah, because I, I think Alex done, has done it more eloquently than I can. But one, it cements these 15 in the league and then double cements their place because of the increased revenue. So therefore, there's like, there's no way anyone can, so not only they can't be moved, there's no way anyone can ever catch them ever again. But then there's the point about what this actually is, which is they know they're not going to do it. In my view, this is a, this is a negotiating tactic. And they do this now. There's loads of outrage. They don't do it eventually but they gain concessions and this is a negotiating tactic and they're testing the water and i think that, yeah this will come and i i hope i'd love to see the premier league and see the fa whatever influence they have to boot them out i think it would be brilliant i don't think for one second they'll ever have the guts to do it or that maybe even the legal right to do it but this is a thin end. This is like kind of like the thin end of the wedge. And what this will create is just such a power imbalance that it, it means that no one will ever be able to compete. And then, and then once the genie's out of the bottle, you, you can't put it back in. And yeah, I just, it's a, it's a horrible, disgusting announcement. The, the people who run the clubs involved should be ashamed of themselves. Liverpool should be ashamed. Man United should be ashamed because they're great football clubs. Arsenal and Spurs should be ashamed because they're having the balls to call themselves Super League clubs when they're in the positions they're in. And I think it's just a, you know, it's just a terrible, um, uh, you know, and also just the timing, isn't it? Like, what awful after the after the world the world has been through in the last sort of 15 months and this is how you do it. It's just all, everything about it. The logo, everything about it is awful. And I, I really hope they, they throw the book at them for it. I have to say, uh, I, uh, I would like you to be right, Tom, but I, I think this is happening. And I think the fact that the clubs have openly committed to it on social media and on the various channels, the fact that the website is up, the fact that the branding, which I agree is uh, legitimately unpleasant to look at, is all up there. I, I think this is passed beyond a bargaining chip. I think the the fact that the Swiss model was going to be agreed, the fact that that these guys, you know, Glazer, Agnelli, uh, Woodward, etc., have all walked away from the roles that they held at, at either UEFA or the ECA means that we've gone past brinkmanship. I absolutely agree that's why it was being done in the past, but I think they've just got tired. I think also with the financial clout that they have and the backing of an investment bank, they know that they can they can take this on. They know that the euros is a it's too soon to the euros for there to be any significant action in that time. It's far enough away from the World Cup for you uh, for FIFA to be able to climb down. Um, and I also I I don't think it's the thin end of the wedge. I think it's sort of. I suppose the way I would put it is more, that, like I said, this is this is what things have been building towards for a long time, and uh, there is nothing to say that in the next sort of three or four years we won't start to see uh, the expansion of this Super League into 
you know, a couple of South American clubs, a couple of Mexican clubs, a couple of Chinese clubs, potentially. Um, I think there's one word, word of caution that, that I would offer, which is that I don't blame any of the fans of these clubs that aren't local to the club themselves. And I have seen some, some takes on this, which frankly border on the xenophobic you know about oh indian fans here or chinese fans there and i think it's i think it's important to recognize that that everybody has a legitimate right to support the the club that they choose to support and that might be the club that's five minutes down the road and it might be a club that's five thousand miles away there is absolutely nothing wrong with that what is wrong is the clubs themselves turning their back on any group of supporters there is there is no requirement for the clubs to do this in order to satisfy one group or another they can very very easily uh sustain the fans that turn up in stadiums and also provide a good experience and and a good fan experience to to fans that live in shanghai or delhi or new york this is about clubs wanting to make more money and to make sure that nobody else can come into a position that threatens their ability to make that money. And that is what this is wrong. There we go. Um, listeners, I, I'd be really keen to hear your thoughts on this. You know the email, it's saintsfcpodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at saintsfcpodcast. Do you agree with Alex? Do you agree with Tom? What, what do you think is going to happen of this? Um, sort of, there is like one little part of me that maybe hopes that this, it, and I'm going to spell out a sort of utopia that's probably not going to happen, but if these six clubs did yeah, go off, do their own thing, and then we sort of had a, a slightly more level playing field as the top division in England, whatever you call it, yeah, I'm, ch- I'm trying to th- think of a future sort of halcyon days where safe standing is regular, Saints are competitive in a in a league where most of the teams are sort of similar levels, and you know some of the perhaps things that I enjoyed when I'd go through my sort of glossy rose tinted glasses to to my history of watching football come back. But um, yeah, that's that, that's probably not going to happen. I think we know the direction that football's going in, and it's sort of inevitable that it continues on that path. Um, Alex. Thank you so much for joining us again. It's an absolute pleasure uh, to have you on the podcast and great to know that there's some Saints supporters out there doing interesting things in the world of sort of football content and media. Um, Obviously, if you want to see more of Alex, um, look out for Tifo Football, their podcast, their videos on Twitter and in The Athletic. Tom, it's always a pleasure to have you on the podcast. So, gents, uh, thank you very much. Uh, once again, the only thing for us to do now is, is say say bye-bye to our listeners. So thank you, listeners. Cheerio. Cheerio. Bye-bye. Thanks very much. Good night.